Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. I love Jeff Goldblum. Over a 50-year acting career, he's played unforgettable roles, like the snarky scientist in Jurassic Park. He saved the world from an alien invasion with Will Smith in Independence Day. And most recently, he was incredible in Thor Ragnarok. Next year, he'll be in the newest installment of Jurassic Park, and Jeff even has his own show on Disney+. Plus. But the one place I didn't expect him to show up was in jazz. Jeff Goldblum is a surprisingly dedicated jazz pianist. He played a weekly gig in L.A. with his band, the Mildred Snitzer Orchestra, until the pandemic, and he still practices every morning. He's released two albums with his band. Their latest is I Shouldn't Be Telling You This, featuring vocals from Gregory Porter, Fiona Apple, Miley Cyrus, and more. And before you start thinking this is just a celebrity vanity project, it's not. Jeff's been playing around for 30 years in clubs and bars. Broken record producer Leah Rose and I talked to Jeff on Zoom about his career as a musician. He told us about how he started playing piano in Pittsburgh cocktail lounges at 15, about his morning practice routine, and he tells us about meeting two of his heroes, Stevie Wonder and Muhammad Ali. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Leah Rose and me in conversation with Jeff Goldblum. Hi, Justin. Hey. Hi, Leah Rose. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Are you kidding? I'm honored and thrilled. Hey, I saw, I just was listening to a little bit of your podcast with Esperanza Spalding. Yeah, isn't she incredible? So incredible. And I met her. I was invited because I know a little bit Wayne Shorter and, and his wife. So I, so I was invited to his, their house, to his house, and I uh, saw a little bit of a, a, a presentation of what they're working on now that Their opera. Yeah, their opera. And she, it just, it was great. Yeah. And she wears those life force suits. She has like 10 of them and she wears it every single day. So she gets that out of the way. She doesn't have to worry about how she looks, what she puts on. Just like, I think Einstein did that. And my character in The Fly did that. I show Gina Davis my closet at some point. I've got five herringbone (laughs) jackets. and, And I say, yeah, I don't want to have to think about what I'm putting on. Yeah, that's like the Steve Jobs thing too. Yeah, same thing. Well, all you know, all of us uh, 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 kooky. I'm not like that in real life. I'm just kind of a regular, 
nincompoop in real life. Oh, come on. Well, I don't know about oh. that, but... <laughs> <laughs> I was at the Grove about 12 years ago. Um, it must have been right before Christmas time because they were, there was like, there was a Christmas tree setting up. And I was there and I was like, wait a second, is that Jeff Goldblum? And you were rehearsing. I wasn't there for the big thing, but you were rehearsing earlier in that afternoon. I was like, holy shit, he plays piano too. And you, you were like, really good. I'll be darned. That's the, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's the only time we ever played the Grove like that. But we played something there. And you know who else was on that bill? It was Bert Bacharach. Oh, I miss Bert? Yeah. Man. Uh, they asked us to be part of this, you know, tree lighting ceremony or, or Christmas Eve thing, or I don't know what it was. But we played some Christmas song. We just took, came out with a Christmas song. Now, you know, um, you, can, you can log on and get Winter Wonderland. We do a nice little version, you know, we, I like that, what we did. How about that? I later saw you at Rockwell. Like, when did you start performing again? Like, when did you start getting out and putting a band together and playing? About 30 years ago. Uh, now, it's been three decades where my friend John Mastro and I, here's what happened. Peter Weller said, hey, let's play out and about. We've been fooling around at my house. He plays trumpet a little bit and uh, not nicely, very nicely. And... Um, and we did that, and then he got the idea we should play out and about. So we had a, there was a, a lovely guitar player that he knew and a place that he said they'd let us set our stuff up and play uh, during brunch or something like that. And we started to play out and about. And, uh, and then he, he's gone off and done other things, but we had this band that grew, and the, whenever I've not been working, I keep doing it. And now, it's uh, even before we did these records, it sort of developed. We've been playing at this place, Rockwell, where you saw us like for the last, I don't know, six or seven or eight years or something, uh, whenever I'm not working once a week. And so as much acting as I do, I've now clocked as many hours of so-called performance, but it always just feels like a hanging out and playing and rehearsing publicly. And I just kind of adore it, you know, more than anything else. Uh, and now it's become a show, a show that we do in theaters, big theaters. We did the Glastonbury Festival and uh, go all over. And it kind of translates itself wherever we go. Uh, where we play stuff that now we, we kind of cook up uh, and the band is really good. And, uh, and then I do spontaneous games and talking and, uh, you know, Goldblum stuff with uh, people. <laughs> <laughs> and why the piano? Why is that your instrument of choice? Well, I, I'm not one of those guys who ever had much of a facility for anything else. I like to drum on things and i like the piano and you know to the extent that it's percussive you know uh so i like to i like to tap dance and i was always interested in making making rhythms but um the piano was just something that was around our house i grew up in pittsburgh and we had a piano there and then they gave us lessons you know my mom was dutifully you know good about exposing us to things that might uh, interest us and she gave us all lessons my brother had a clarinet for a little bit and but we had a piano, and I had some facility for it, but would, didn't know the joys of discipline yet. Would dread the lessons and Tommy Emmel coming over, and I hadn't practiced, and da 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 But then he gave me a piece of music, an arrangement that I learned, because I'd learned how to read music, of Alley Cat. And I first sort of became aware of syncopation, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
hey, I understand that you, you're interested in a pianist. And most of them would say, no, we don't have a, I don't know who this is, kid. Well, you're, you're, you're misinformed. But a couple of them said, who's this? Yeah, we got a piano here. Nobody's playing. We come down and play it. And I got a couple of gigs that way. And so That's I amazing. Said, yeah, I know. Just for the fun of it. What were you playing? Oh, you know, well, I would bring the fake book with me like I used to do up until recently, really, until we really kind of honed our repertoire and had something to kind of present. And I had a show that, which I do, which has games and things in it. It's kind of a neat hour, three hours actually for me. But at that time, I just brought a, you know, my fake books and would just go through them. You know, my dad's song, favorite song was Misty. You know, he loved Errol Garner and exposed me to it early on. I'm still crazy about him, you know, and he brought home that album, you know, Errol Garner plays Misty and I'd listen to that. So anyway, I'd play that and other things. I think I played as, you know, Satin Doll, you know, probably Girl from Ipanema, probably, you know, anything else. And then I would take requests. I'd say, you know, what do you want me to play? And then I'd look it up. I'd see if I have it because I could kind of, you know, cold read a, read a lead sheet, you know, like that. Were people receptive in these bars? I, I don't imagine Pittsburgh as being like a big jazz town, even though I found out a bunch of jazz, like our Blakey and Errol are from there, but were they receptive when you were playing? Ahmad Jamal, the different people. Well, I don't think the places that I went were serious jazz. I don't think they were going expecting to see, you know, Ahmad Jamal or Errol Garner there. Uh, but I, from what I gather, there were places that I should have been going to that were serious there. You know, Pittsburgh is a hotbed of uh, talent, but I didn't. No, the, the places I went, like the guys that I got on on the other end of the phone, I think they were just cocktail lounges. And they said, yeah, come down. And so I, I just saw the the people there wanting drinks and stuff. And they were receptive. Plenty. They were receptive enough, you know, to what I thought I was doing. You weren't getting, you weren't getting booed. <laughs> Your, people were appreciative of at least listening. They seemed, they seemed tickled in some way, you know, yeah. At that point, did you act at all? Had you done any like just little plays around or? Well, around that time, I, I had my heart set on uh, acting because I'd gone to Carnegie Mellon University in the between ninth and 10th and 10th and 11th grades for these six week summer sessions that they had the serious professors of that good school, that good program teach these kids do from all over the country. And I just uh, uh, felt like I was home and had felt and had found my family somehow and was very excited and would write on the sh steamy shower door every morning as I took a shower before school, please God, let me be an actor. And then I, I kept it secret. I would wipe it away so nobody saw it because it was just a secret of mine, but I, would, I was sort of um, baying at the moon about the whole thing. Uh, but I hadn't really done anything because even the, the kind of cheesy uh, you know, thing in the high school that I went to, which was sort of provincial in some ways, you know, they, they did Oklahoma or something like that, but I kind of didn't participate. I was stupidly not, you know, kind of thought I was, had other, other notions and this and that. And, uh, and as soon as I could get out at 17, I graduated, went to New York somehow and got to the neighborhood playhouse where Sandy Meisner, a great acting teacher was teaching. And that's when I started to do it, but still hadn't really done anything, studied that year. And then in between the first and second year, I fell into uh, by a fluke, a production of my first job. And the first thing I was, didn't even go up for, they called the school, in fact, said, do you have anybody tall that could be a guard in this thing? We're doing this musical version of Two Gentlemen of Verona. And Galt McDermott, who wrote Hair, oh, wow. yeah. uh, along with Jerome Ragney, wrote the uh, music to it, is doing the music to it. And, and, and uh, John Guare, who's a great playwright, is adapting the Shakespeare. And Raul Julie was in it. And da-da-da-da. I got the part and I joined that. It was, in the, it was in the chorus and this and that and played in the pit. I used to go down and play piano when I was down there. And in the pit was um, Thad Jones. Wow. Would be in the pit. You know, all these guys take little stints in, in, in Broadway uh, or orchestra pits sometimes. And I had seen him because my dad, the jazz fan, we'd gone to Atlantic City from Pittsburgh. We'd driven to Atlantic City like we used to do several years. And... Uh, like on the steel pier or something, there was some, he said, I, Hey, I see that Thad Jones and Mel Lewis are playing. We got to go see them. So I saw them and their big band live. I can still remember it. Anyway, then I saw him. I was like, Hey, I saw you. And did I, did I play a little? And so I was playing with these guys, you know, with, with a lot of moxie. Was Galt McDermott down in the pit too? Galt McDermott, you know, no, he would, you know, like that was a Broadway show. It was the biggest hit the Shakespeare Festival had ever had. And it caused a big stir that summer at the Delacorte outside. And then we went to the St. James Theater. I was there for a year 
understudied one of the bigger parts. And no, the composer of it, I think they check in on it probably. Sure. You know, even unbeknownst to us sometimes. But no, no, my friend Tom Pearson was was conducting. and, And oh, do you know who else was in that pit for a while who played drums? Bernard Purdy. Do you know Bernard Purdy? We were supposed to interview him for this. Well, this is 1971, and he was, uh, you know, in, in his uh, full flush of his of his brilliant tendencies, having played for Aretha Franklin with Aretha. Jeez, Bernard Purdy. How about that? So, did you talk to these guys and sort of ask them, like, glean advice or? You know, I was stupid. Like, I've always been kind of stupid. I kind of am like Zelig in some way. I kind of would show up and just had a lucky, you know, <laughs> intersection with some of these types. But unlike now, where I wouldn't get really hip, I was sort of just sort of stupid. And now you can go on IMDb. You can use, you know, Wikipedia. Before I have meetings, I go and, and work with people. I go, geez, all right. I know them, but there are all sorts of stories that I can tell you about actors that I've worked with and including Thad Jones and Bernard Purdy, who I barely realized how lucky I was, right. you know, likewise with many actors. But now that's why I kind of go, um, I, I hope it's not a, a, a violation of protocol, but I, I, I find out about it. You do some research. Yeah, I do my research and I say, oh, and then I ask them uh, questions. <laughs> So cool. So early on, so those early performances at like Pittsburgh bars, those are your first public performances ever. Yeah, you could say that. I guess, I guess so. That's right. (laughs) It's so strange. It's so funny that that was your, your, you, you know, you go on to act and acting was really your main, the main thing you were after. But then the earliest public display of Jeff Goldblum is, is, is playing piano. Yeah, that's right. It was first. That's why it feels natural now. And it was always just for fun. I never had any kind of identity investment in it, like, or careerism about it. I was just like, hey, I just want to do this. This is fun. And still, that's kind of how this whole thing has happened now. And it just changes my days and my life. Uh, Every day, like this morning, I get up and play for about an hour. It's one of the first things I do before the kids get up at around 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. I work out here and I play piano and I work on my lines for Jurassic World at this point. I'm, I got a part to work on. So I get all my homework done. I'm very, now I know what it's like to be disciplined and how that can bear fruit. And so I just play and it changes my day. It's, music is, is as much a, a meditation and a tonic for me as anything that I do. And I just adore it. And then playing out and about, which is kind of developed now and making these records is just a, as sweet a thing as you know, could have happened to a fellow here on earth. We'll be back with more from Jeff Goldblum after a quick break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with more from Jeff Goldblum, who's talking about his skilled bandmates in the Mildred Snitzer Orchestra. How is it playing with those guys? Because you didn't go to, I mean, a lot of your band, like the Berkeley, and, you know, they played with other great players. Yeah. And- they all went there. They're all to all those places and they're, they're masters and they teach. Yeah. And they, they're, they're great for me. Uh, no, it's just great playing with all those guys, you know. And now what I do every morning, actually, is from the last album, which is what we're going to be playing when we do it, I hope, live again this soon, is uh, we're going to be doing a lot of that stuff. So I put on the album. And play along with uh, the songs, plus several other things that we're cooking up that we that are currently in our back burner. And but I play all of it uh, every day. I go through that whole album, play all of it. You go through your most recent record and play along. Yep. Wow. Yep. Yep. Every day with Miley Cyrus and Fiona Apple and Sharon Van Etten and uh, Anna Calvi, everybody, and Ari George and uh, Greg Reporter. Every single day, I play. Uh, you know, at least once in the morning. You know, make someone happy. I'm getting better. I tell you. Do you almost wish you could re-record the album? Do you feel like you were getting it under your fingers better? Oh, yeah. At the time we did the album, you know, we had just uh, come up with these arrangements. The first album was something else. We did this kind of, you know, a facsimile of our Rockwell date and, and it was very spontaneous. And the songs we played, you know, we had maybe a couple of takes, but we, we it was whatever came out, you know. And so I was kind of, it was however we did it. But but we arranged these a little more complicatedly and sophisticatedly, and I had something to learn on them, and I was just getting my sea legs on most of them as we recorded them, and kind of reading and turning pages and, and getting them done. Uh, but now I know all of them. Uh, I keep investigating them every day and do different things every day with them. But oh yeah, they're, they're more under my fingers for sure. How do you go about choosing the vocalists that you work with? Is there a type of voice that you feel especially drawn to? Well, we had a wish list and we have many people. I do and the band did. I sort of defer sometimes to them. They, they know who uh, they like and I, I, I love their taste. But uh, I was crazy about all these uh, people that we worked with. Gregory Porter, you know, I kind of the way we got hooked up with Decca. I was promoting Thor that movie a few years ago and uh, and I did the Graham Norton show in in uh, London and um, Gregory Porter was the musical guest and he was promoting that Nat King Cole album and he wanted to sing Mona Lisa and he was had done it with just a piano player and said hey do you want to accompany me on the show and uh, we ran through it backstage once and uh, I did and it was because Decca Tom Lewis, Rebecca Allen, saw uh, the show and said, hey, maybe we should do something with Jeff, that that whole thing came about. So anyway, I was thrilled that he was on the album, and I love his voice, and we were thinking, gee, if it was even before he agreed to do it, that I had proposed it to him, that we said, what would he sing? What what could he sing? Uh, Everything he sings, but we like this song, make someone happy, and and we can do it so slowly that, you know, it could be right in his sweet spot. And sure enough, I'm, I'm just crazy about what he did with us. And then the other singers, you know, we were looking for, I think we were looking for singers who weren't ordinarily in the jazz vein. Right. And uh, thought that their brilliant, um, unique, uh, you know, artistry could mash up with us in a way that would be unexpected, surprising. And on a lot of those songs, as you see, as you know, we mashed up a couple of different tunes you know, jazz tunes, to stand, jazz standards with, you know, pop tunes. <laughs> yeah, the Sidewinder with um, the beat goes on. It's cr- I've listened to the uh, Sidewinder so many times. I've listened to the beat goes on a bunch of times and they fit together so well. I never, I, I, it had never occurred to me until I listened to the record. It's so incredible. Yeah, the guys from the band, they all, they all did that. You know, we, that was in the same uh, harmonic composition and you know i love that yeah the beat goes on with sidewinder i that at all we we played that at gigs before that was in our 
you know, sometimes repertoire. And that, it always drove me crazy. I love, love that song. It just drives me wild. But how about the thrill is gone that Miley does with, uh, with Django. My brother, one of the records that had a big influence on me was, uh, the modern jazz quartet the records that he would bring home and, uh, John Lewis and Django. So they knew about that. They, they, they sort of, some of the band, um, uh, Joe Bag and John Story and Alex Frank kind of figured out that Django would be good with The Thrill Is Gone. I love that. But how about Four on Six with Broken English? How did that, how did that come together? Well, the guys, they had, it was before we got um, Anna Calvi to join us. They put it together. We, we, they said, let's do another mashup like that. And the chord structure was, uh, was right for it. And so... Yeah, four on six, which we'd played a bunch before, uh, West Montgomery tune, but broken English, uh, Mary Ann Faithful. I, I, I was not as familiar with that, but they, they, they figured that it was right. And I play it every day. Now I know that a lot better. I can't wait till we play that again. You know, mm, G minor. And, uh, I got a little solo in there for a moment. Oh, I like that song. <laughs> and then, Oh, how about that? If I knew then, you know, with Gina Saputo, that little, we transpose, it was their idea to transpose that uh, Sarah Vaughn solo that she does, that she scats on that. Uh, and we, we play that all together just in a little snippet. So was there a concept before you started recording the album? Well, just only that, um, that, that this mashup of not only tunes might be interesting, but this mashup of uh, maybe not traditionally um, uh, jazz singers we could mash up with us. That was the that was our theme. Mm-hmm. That was it. And then somebody said, "Well, oh, maybe you should sing a song." And I do like to sing, just for my own uh, uh, annoyance, you know, and uh, pleasure. <laughs> and um, and uh, and then little, uh, you know, I, I recorded into this uh, into Alex Frank's iPhone one day. Little man, you've had a busy day, which I've been singing to the kids when they go to sleep sometimes. And he said, "Yeah, do that." And they came up, came up with a uh, a, a, an arrangement for that. Yeah. Do your boys look at you as sort of like a music man? Are you? Do you play the piano a lot while they're around and sing to them? Yes, I. You, you know, um, we're singing all the time, and I play the piano all the time. I've got keyboards. I've got a nice Fender Rhodes, old Fender Rhodes that I have, and another Yamaha keyboard that I use for practicing, and a nice uh, Yamaha uh, Grand acoustic Grand. And so they're they're around, and I play them all the time. And I'm singing, and they're, you know, I think they're musical, and they're taking lessons themselves. Wow. They're, we, we, yeah, um, Emily, who's very good at, you know, c- keeping them uh, exposed to all sorts of things, uh, we got them into Suzuki. Do you know the Suzuki? Yep, I did Suzuki method when I was younger. You did? Yeah. I didn't know it so much, but now we've got a very good teacher named uh, Sensei Kevin, and uh, and during this period, we had gone, I drove them over to the valley, and on Ventura Boulevard, there's a nice little studio, and he, he took some lessons there, and now he's been doing it once a week, or no, twice a week, uh, virtually. And uh, and I play with him every day, but believe it or not, he, and he's five, Charlie, the other one, you have to kind of force him. To, he, he does as little as possible. He's really not interested in it. <laughs> he plays Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. But Charlie is going through this Suzuki book, and he does what I do, I guess, because maybe I've modeled it, but he, re- he knows that I play every morning. So every morning he gets up at 6.30 and he runs through his whole repertoire. Wow. Yeah. And he's just learning to, you know, do, do things with uh, hands together, you know, um, wow. in um, unison. Uh, but he's just, he, but he's learning a couple of pieces where there's some, where he separates them and there's something coordinated you got to do with two different hands. And he's, and he's worked on it and he's getting them better and he's passing through stages and it just kind of thrills me like a, like the average Papa, you know, I, I look at it and it kind of, you know, just, just, uh, blows my, blows my mind. That's incredible. Yeah. Amazing. I'm going to send my kids to your house, Jeff. <laughs> you can get them disciplined. Really? How many kids you got? What, and what are they doing? Two. I have, um, four year old and a almost two year old. Hey, we're in the same boat. Well, that's it. They started around, you know, four. So it's been easy. I mean, and I look at him. One of the things that I say to myself and oftentimes aloud to Emily is, wow, I did not. I started play, taking lessons when I was, I think, I don't know, eight, nine, ten, something like that. I was not playing like he was at uh, 10. And then he says, you know, we do listening things. He goes, here, play what I just did. And then he just likes to explore the piano. And he, you know, he puts he uh, all over the 
all over the keyboard. And then sometimes, although we say, oh, don't, you know, don't ruin the piano, but he goes inside the piano. He likes to see how it works. And, you know, start, you know, plucking the strings. He might be an avant-garde, you know, player one of these days. Has he gone to any of your gigs yet? Uh, you know, he was, uh, well, you know, the, the, the nighttime gigs are two, they go to bed at seven thirty. Right. but, uh, and we start the gig at nine. But, um, when we've played a couple of these festivals, one I'm thinking of, uh, I forget where it was, you know, in the daytime, we all drove up to wherever it was and it was a big outdoor festival and he was on the side of the, in the wings as I was playing. I don't know that it made much impression on him and, uh, uh, but it, it maybe imp- imprints on them, you know, someplace. But, you know, I don't know if, even know if he'd remember now. But, but even now, uh, they're not, I, maybe they model themselves after me in some way, but they're not particularly impressed. Oftentimes they'll say, stop playing, stop playing. They, 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 they want to interrupt and, and stop. Yeah. But then he'll say, hey, do, you know, do this stuff from my book and I'll play stuff from his book. And they'll get kind of, you know, frenzied. And uh, and jump on me and stuff like that. It, music is, uh, as you know, it uh, it has a wild effect on the on the on the nervous system, doesn't it? Absolutely. He's going to be calling around to cocktail lounges pretty soon. Watch out! <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. We'll have more with Jeff Goldblum after the break. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with the rest of our interview with Jeff Goldblum, who when we left off was talking about his kids' newfound love for music. When you were their age or a little, maybe a little older, but just in your childhood, you weren't maybe as disciplined as they were with the playing but was was music an important part of your life? Were you listening a lot and introduced to a lot? And... Yes, I was listening. Like I say, my dad brought home those Errol Garner records and they would bring Broadway musicals home and uh, Music Man and My Fair Lady and, and stuff like that. But jazz. And then I had an older brother, like I say, four years older than I was, who was really into jazz. And he would bring home 
Stan Getz and uh, Gilberto. That album I, I was I was listening to a lot, and and Modern Jazz Quartet, uh, and all kind of all kind of stuff. So it was yeah, it was around, and it it did something to me. I was you know I would get jazzed up you know around music early on. So would you say, do you consider jazz to be your favorite type of music? Well. And can you try to articulate what it does for you? So many things, you know, jazz, there's so many kinds of jazz and different songs that hit every, all manner of chords in you. But yeah, it's very, I find it complicated, uh, you know, sometimes and can hit places in me that uh, are uniquely unreachable otherwise certainly i love early on i sort of got the idea that musicians and even in in recording could do something spontaneous and be inventing something on the spot that has always done something to me that idea i'm still enthralled with it and i try to bring that to my acting and my presentations of one kind or another and i'm a student of it in as it applies to jazz, you, you know, I just l- love that. I love to s- try it myself and feel like I'm, you know, inventing right now. And it kind of calls upon you to be, it obliges you to be present, you know, which it sort of overlaps with another of my interests. You know, I've exposed, I had some exposure to Eckhart Tolle, for in- instance, and, you know, uh, and, uh, uh, be here now from uh, the the sixties Ramdas and stuff. So that's that's been part of my you, you know appetite and interest all along. So it does all those things. But jazz. When I saw that movie, which I'll bet you like, uh, Round Midnight, with Herbie Hancock playing a part in it, and Dexter Gordon, of course. I when I saw that in the theater, I just started to cry at one point. Tears sprang out of my eyes when they started to play something, and there was no reason. There was no lyric. There weren't lyrics to it. It was, of course, an, an instrumental, and it was Herbie playing something, and it was just the complication and the lushness and of the chords that just did something to me. And of course, all those practitioners, their their devotion, lifelong devotion to it, and a sacred you know, romance with it is just, you know, hits me hard. Yeah. And then we had a little 45 player, my sister and I, who's two years younger, and she and I would collect these things. Oh boy, we had, we had, there were a couple that we just played over and over again. I got this Stevie Wonder record of, uh, um, for once in my life that I played over and I must've played it thousands of times. And now I've come to meet him and know him a little bit, believe it or not. He stopped in to the recording, one of the recording sessions uh, on our first album. How frightening was that? <laughs> I know. I just adore him. I've adored him my whole life, but we, all these 45s we played over and over again. We played this uh, Peggy Lee song. Is that all there is? Uh, a lot. We had a little 45 of that. Uh, you know, so it was, it was all over the place. Yeah. So what do you say to Stevie Wonder when you meet him? Cause people must come up to you all the time and want, you know, it's like, this is my chance. This is Jeff Goldblum. What do I say? Well, so I'm sensitive to, you know, how, you know, he must be beleaguered. Um, and you know, his wife was very nice. We've become friendly with his wife. We were on a cruise. It was a kind of an intimate, a semi-intimate, you know, setting where we first met. And, um, and I, uh, he, he couldn't have been sweeter. I was very nice. And, you know, as you can imagine, uh, he touches you and I touched his, you know, we were holding hands a little bit and, you know, um, uh, you know, I said into his ear, you know, you know, it was a little noisy around. I said, you know, how much I adored him and this and that. And, you know, we talked, he, he couldn't have been sweeter. He, he was just great. I, it was one of the thrills of my life. Amazing. It's like the time I met Muhammad Ali and his wife, it was later, he was a little bit already getting a little bit uh, uh, challenged. And, uh, and uh, he said, Oh, Jeff, Jeff Goldblum, you scared me. You scared me. I said, what do you, what do you mean? His wife said, oh, he just, we, we saw the fly. We just saw the fly. <laughs> he said, oh, he said, I said, well, champ, I just so, I, I got a little weepy. I said, I just adore you so much. And I've always, I've always, you've meant so much to me. And thank you so much. And he said, well, where, you know, I may come over and, 
and knock on your door someday and and come over and visit you. I said, oh, ch- champ, that would be just just great. And anyway, you never, I never got a chance to, or he never did. But I just, uh, you know, I'm very easily starstruck by a couple of types, especially. Stevie Wonder and Muhammad Ali are two yeah. good types. Oh. Yeah. oh, man, you're telling me. You're telling me. It's funny, too, because I guess a lot of people, you know, people probably have seen The Big Chill. And a big part of that movie is the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people you know, of your cohort, it's like, that's the soundtrack of their growing up, you know, the Stones and the Mo- all yeah. the Motown, which of course Stevie's a part of, but it seems like you were more jazz geared than like, you know, Beatles and The Who and, or were you, did you also listen to a lot of rock and roll? And I, I was jazz geared. I had a big thing for jazz, but, um, but at our, when I, I went to this little kind of provincial small town school, we were in the suburbs of Pittsburgh and and uh, we used to have little dances, but right around that time, let me see, I was born in 52. So when I was like 13, coming of uh, a particular age, it's now what, 52, 65, something like that. And look up the hits that we had at our, at our lunchtime you know, dances and, all, and they played all Motown stuff. So, you know, Diana Ross and the Supremes and... Uh, uh, Marvin Gaye and all that stuff. Well, I was really into Ray Charles. I was into real early. Um, and then the only kind of rock stuff, you know, it would come on the radio, but rock stuff, my brother, the same brother who was interested in jazz took me over to his apartment once he'd already moved out of the house when I was like, I don't know, 15, 16, I looked up to him and he had uh, a bunch of Beatles albums and introduced me for the first time to, you know, the White Album, Sgt. Pepper's and Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, and I loved those, you know, those had a big, uh, made a big impression on me. Yeah. What an era of music to be a young person. I know. It was totally magical. I know. I feel very lucky to have been right where I was somehow. And then New York and, you know, at a really cool time too for not only for acting but music you know i mean you could still go into any jazz club and see incredible people or go to greenwich village and you know insane yes yeah what would you do like on off nights when you weren't working in new york city well i i wish i'd like i said about my you know now you know encounter with some people sometimes i didn't know who i was with or where i was i wish i'd looked around more because i was a very focused kind of acting student and you know i had things to do and i was very good at that that point but my friend tom pearson who was in who was the leader of the band and a piano player uh uh took me to a couple of gigs and i remember i think we saw wayne shorter and saw some very kind of you know, new stuff that they were doing that was, you know, atonal and, and, uh, went on and, uh, that was really something else. I, uh, we were, we were there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish I'd, I, I, I could have appreciated where I was more and everything that I might've exposed myself to more probably just like now there's probably right in my own backyard things that if I were fully awake, fully awakened, I would, cherish investigate and understand more you know i'm sure there are things like that yeah well that goes back to the be here now you're just supposed to be happy here in the moment present where you are it's all enough i think so i think so we're getting exactly what we need uh right here right now somehow yep (laughs) what drove you to acting primarily given your sort of early leanings towards piano and music and performing with, you know, at these bars. Yeah. It's a little mysterious. All of this is a little mysterious. I just was, I, uh, our, my, my parents once again, you know, exposed us to, you know, theater. We went to children's theater. I remember early on when I went to at the Pittsburgh playhouse, uh, some, a couple of shows, you know, I, for kids, I don't know, beauty and the beast or, you know, something like that. I just, was very excitable <laughs> because of it, and uh, and and I remember thinking, who are those people who are doing that? What are they doing backstage? What's how how do you do something like that? And that that it, you know it just happened like that. And then uh, well, I took those summer classes at Carnegie Mellon University. I was already yearning for some kind of 
part of me that was as yet unexplored uh, in this, like I say, small town kind of school. And I think it had something to do with, listen to this, my parents had had parts of them unexplored, potentially unrealized that were theatrical. My mom early on had some kind of experience where uh, a, a scout of some kind said she should you know, leave Pittsburgh to go to New York. And her mom said, no, no way. Da, da, da. And then my dad, at some point in his you know, the late teens, thought, because he was trying to get out of poverty and make something of himself, thought for some reason he was either going to be a doctor or an actor. And he said he stuck his head in the back of a class at Carnegie Tech, which Carnegie Mellon was then called. And he thought to himself, he reported to us, uh, that it was out of his league. I don't know what he meant by that. Maybe it was that it was emotionally, because he was always a little bit conservative emotionally, I think, even though an authentic person of deep feeling, you know, I, he was not theatrical, he thought, maybe. And so he was a doctor. He became a good doctor and, uh, and like that. So maybe the lost, uh, you know, hot potatoes of uh, unrealized talent uh, and interest uh, it came to me somehow. And maybe that had something to do with it. You know, who knows? Do you think your parents saw it the same way? Like you were living out this dream that they had in a way? They never said, if I can remember rightly, I don't ever recall a conversation where they said, hey, you know, we didn't do it, but you do it. Or, you know, and, and I don't think it was a conspicuous and ever-present part of their current adult life where they were like, oh, I should have been a, an actor. I don't think they thought that. So it never came up like that. And I don't know if it ever even occurred to them or they said to themselves, but I'll tell you this, they were both kind of tickled by the idea that, uh, that I was doing some of this stuff. And like I say, music, you know, my dad was like, you know, listen to Errol Garner, listen, listen. He likes the pauses and listen how brave he is there. And he would go, bah, 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 and these octaves. And da, da, da. He kind of knew he had a music appreciation and a, a real uh, uh, kind of appetite for it. And so, you know, they, when they drove me and I could see, you know, they were, I'm sure, grinning, you know, at me playing at these cocktail lounges. And then a couple of years later, once I was in New York and, and did one of my early plays, I did a play called City Sugar this by Stephen Polyakov, a British writer, where I was the lead character in a kind of off-Broadway uh, theater. And it was the first big part that I'd had. And my dad, and they, they, my parents came to see it. And after the show, my dad came back stage and he burst into tears and he threw his arms around me and hugged me. And it wasn't either of those things. The tears part and the hugging part were uncharacteristic. And it really, it really got him. And now that I'm thinking of it, when I was, when I was uh, going to Carnegie Mellon and coming back, uh, he, he said, in, in a very memorable moment for me, he said, I was there and he said to my mom, well, look, as I was saying, oh, this is what we learned. And I was kind of chattering. He said, look, the, the kid is stimulated. He said, the kid is stimulated. And um, I, I, I remember that. I think, it, I think he appreciated because he had said to me, he'd said, you know, I don't care what you do. You don't have to be a doctor like me. But if you find something you love to do, that's a compass and a key to your, uh, you know, vocational choice. So he was smart, and uh, and he realized that uh, that that I'd sort of found something. Yeah. How about that? A soulful guy your dad was, yeah. especially for a doctor. You know, you don't think of a doctor as being, but so open and just encouraging and able yeah. to hear the stuff and the music and explain it to you and take the time. Yeah, he was actually a very lucky. You know, very grateful for the parents that I had. You know, it's not as if I've gone. Uh, through my life without, oh, you know, dark struggles of one kind or another. And I think healthy struggles where I'd find my own separate uh, uh, identity from theirs. But in fact, I'm very grateful for those two parents. They were just the right combo for for me to have wound up right here, right now. And uh, and yeah, he was, you know, for in any objective way, a kind of sophisticated, soulful, uh, uh, wise uh, Wise fella. How about that? And, and very generous, uh, sweet, uh, sweet guy. That's amazing. Do you, are you writing at all? Do you, do you ever, are you secretly composing any songs or, or anything unrealized or do you want to? No, not really. I don't really compose. I don't really compose. Although I must say the other day, 
uh, <laughs> Charlie, we sat down and he brought me a couple of blank sheets of, you know, like, uh, you know, printer paper. And he said, here, write a, he, he didn't know how to say it, write a, write music, write, let's, let's make up a song. Uh, he said, and I, so I wrote a staff, I put the treble clef and I wrote the, the, the staff and he's, and he did something and I wrote it down. And then I added something to that. And then he added something to that. And I wrote it all down. It's on the piano in the living room right now. And uh, I like playing it. It's, it's different. I wouldn't have come up with it on my own. It's a little, I don't think we're Lennon and McCartney, but it, we, we came up with something. It was fun. This is a side project. <laughs> this is your new band. It was fun. Well, we, we like playing together. I got a couple of drums. I got some bongo drums and a nice uh, kind of conga. And, and we all make uh, sounds together. We, we like it. That's amazing. If you had to put together a, a jazz starter kit, which albums would it include? Well, that's a good that's a good question. The guy, I, you know, I'd I'd ask the guy for real for the real good answers. I'd ask Joe Bag and and Alex Frank and uh, John Story. But let me see from my own personal experience. Well, you know, I because they're still turning me on to you know Wynton Kelly. I'm learning a, a solo of Wynton Kelly's right now. Uh, and I had not been so focused on him before. So there's so many. But, uh, you know, Oscar Peterson, if you're interested in the piano, I'd listen to Oscar Peterson and Bill Evans. And I like Keith Jarrett. And I like Thelonious Monk. Anything by any of those uh, guys I like, geez, you, you know, there's so many tributaries of that river, you know, that you can go down as kind of personal taste. And, uh, you know, like I say, I'm still getting turned on to so many different things now. But those, you know, Miles Davis, uh, you know, I do love those those piano players: Oscar Peterson, Errol Gardner, Delonious Monk. All pretty different. What, do, do you? Is there anything you think you take in from their playing and you put in yours, or anything you ever play and you're like, oh, that, I, you know, I got that from Oscar. Well, early, well, Oscar Peterson, you know, you have to be to get those chops. You know, you can't just kind of even imitate those chops. But I do like to do runs, and I do like a couple of his gospely kind of voicings that uh, I've sort of tried to study a little bit that I, you know, I, I, I love to listen. And when I listen, I feel like I'm immediately, I, not that I can reproduce it, but I'm immediately, you know, influenced and excited about it. And then Monk, of course, you know, I, I like to play a hard, masculine, angular, unexpected fifth down low and do something, you know, um, that's uh, full of ugly beauty, you know, all over, you know, and uh, he's, he's very inspirational. Um, Keith Jarrett, ooh, the way he, I like the way he is, has a kind of religious experience that comes deeply out of him, and he's so sophisticated and at the same time, uh, you know, spontaneous with what, with a connection seemingly between his, uh, musical imagination and his fingers and what he hears, which is so brilliant, you know, immediately, you know, making music like that. It's a beautiful thing to watch. You know, I love it. Have you, have you seen him at all ever? No, I'd love to. I'd love to. You? Yeah. So I'm at, I saw him at the concert hall in 2006 when I was like 16, saved up a bunch of money. It was expensive, but bought a ticket, went, and it was, it was solo and improv, you know, did a solo improv and it was, it was mind blowing. Mind blowing. I'd yeah. love to have seen that. If I had a time machine, maybe that's, that's the reason to go back. I'd, I'd, I'd go back with you and we'd uh, watch it again. Cool. I'm so curious about this. I've heard you refer to yourself as a late bloomer. Well, true enough. Yeah. Yeah. So how does that manifest itself? What does that mean to you? How are you blooming? Well, you know, I mean, first of all, here I am at the age I'm at, and I have a five-year-old and a three, almost a five-year-old and a three-year-old. So that's late blooming and and uh, uh, fertility of some kind. <laughs> and um, my teacher Sanford Meisner was very good. He said that it takes a serious two decades, twenty years of continual work before you can even call yourself an actor meaning that you it really takes that much time before you can grow in yourself inside the life of an actor and how you really live and use things and see things and can function theatrically 
uh, uh, imaginatively and know yourself and can use yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then he said, after that, it takes a lifetime, if you're lucky, to keep getting opportunities of c- progress, uh, where you can keep progressing. And that's the aim. That's what I'm recommend to you and setting. And I think I took that to heart. So even if I wasn't made of that kind of stuff, although I think I was a kind of slow learner of some kind and, you know, uh, I took it to heart and have sort of um, at least imagined that I have designed, that there's some design that's a little bit like that for my arc, you know, not only uh, acting wise, but musically, certainly. I mean, I'm at a time right now of more flourishing and flowering than ever with these records and with what I'm doing. I'm playing better than than ever. I played this morning better than I'd played yesterday and ever, I think. Uh, I look for that and I think um, uh, that's what's happening. And in life, my gosh, here I am with these kids and learning by leaps and bounds. And I've got this show, The World According to Jeff Goldblum, where I'm ostensibly to make use of my curiosity and my you know, learning, you know, you know, exposing myself while in the learning curve. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm full of, I'm a humble student and full of eager uh, uh, learning. So I am, I think I'm, I think I'm uh, blooming late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's super inspiring because so many people just reach a certain age or point in life and just sort of shut down, you know, and whether it's shutting down to like even discovering new music or anything it's people can get so rigid yeah so it's it's really nice to hear that oh thank you well i i was exposed to the right idea here and there and i do aspire to it and and uh you know I'm, i try to lend i'm sure i'm becoming brittle and 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 shriveled and pretty soon i'll be all all gone but but uh, you know in the time that i have however much it is i'm trying to supremely make the the most of the and cherish the opportunity you know Cool. Incredible. Thanks for the time. Really appreciate it, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be on this great show. I'm thrilled. Thank you so much. Thanks to Jeff Goldblum for chatting with Leah and I. Jeff Goldblum's new album, I Shouldn't Be Telling You This, is out now. You can hear it along with tracks from the artists he mentioned in the interview and the playlist for this episode at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Broken Record Podcast, where you can find all our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider becoming a Pushnik. Pushnik is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for only $4.99 a month. Look for Pushnik exclusively on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. He put everything you need to know in a new presentation specifically designed for people off Wall Street. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at newstocktrend.com right now. Again, the link to watch is newstocktrend.com. That's newstocktrend.com. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just... 
$30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.